When I was growing up, my mom, um, between my mom and my dad, my mom was the softy. Um, she was the one that I knew. We had a little bit of me and my brother. We knew that we had a little bit of leeway with mom in comparison to dad. Um, if we were in the car and she said something along the lines of, don't make me pull this car over, you know, I don't know if you ever heard that as a, as a kid or as a teenager. Um, we would hear that from mom and we'd be like, mom, pull the car over. Like, that's really going to happen. However, if dad, if we were riding the car with dad and dad something said along the lines of, um, do you want me to pull this car over? We knew that the buns were going to be burning um, if we didn't, if we didn't straight, because we'd probably already got like a whack or two or a pinch, you know, at that point in the back seat. Um, or if we were in the back room, um, look, when, when I wanted to have a friend spend the night, always ask mom, right? Hey, mom, is it okay if Jason comes over and spend the night? Oh, sure. My mom was like the party mom. Like everybody, yeah, come on over. More the merrier. We'll, we'll do whatever. We'll have chips and drinks and pizza. We'll have a party. We're always up for parties. Now, we never asked dad if somebody could come over. Because if you asked dad if somebody would come over, he'd look at me and like, do like a little grunt, you know, a, a frown and say, no. You know, we knew mom could talk dad into just about anything. Now, whenever she said, whenever she said, you know, I will tell your father when you, when he gets home, you know, that's when we knew we were in serious trouble. When we heard that line, don't make me tell your dad. Now, the thing is with mom is that she rarely meant it. And that's why, you know, Jason and I, my brother and I, you know, got away with murder as kids with mom, because she rarely meant it, but dad always meant it, he always meant it, there was always a spanking, there was always a car pulling over, there was always, because dad meant it, in this series that we're doing, um, we're doing a series called, what if he meant it, and we're looking at some of the teachings of Jesus that we'll say is a little bit more difficult for us to swallow at times, and we're going to ask ourselves, what if he meant it like it was coming from dad? What if he meant it like it was coming from God? Um, We're going to look at things, you know, talking about where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's the one we're looking at today. But what if he really meant that? Or or what if he meant it when he said that, that forgiveness and grace that God pours out into your life is really dependent upon the grace and forgiveness that you pour into other people's lives? Because if you hold unforgiveness in your heart, the Heavenly Father can't forgive you. Now, that was like a Jared paraphrase. Um, but, but what if he, but what if he, really, what if he re- really meant that? I mean, there's some serious implications to some of the harder teachings of Jesus. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to dig into this idea of what if he meant it? If you want to pull out your notes, you can follow along. We're going to read John chapter 14, and we're going to dig into the first one, where we're going to talk about where Jesus says it's, there's one way. John chapter 14, verse 1 through 9 says this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Circle those words, also in me. It goes in verse 2, he says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can, how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, read it along with me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes on to say, if you really know me, 
you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Underline those words, and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that, and, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, do you, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, underline these next words, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me, let's unpack this a little bit. Think about where God's people are at this time. Um, God's people at this time, they have the histories. You know, they have teachings and they have writings and they have this oral history of of, of what has happened throughout, you know, the beginning and Moses and, and the prophets and the Old Testament. They understand all those things. But in this moment, in this point, they have gone over 400 years without hearing from God. At this place, God has been silent. As if he was building something up, something great is about to happen. They haven't had a prophet speak on behalf of God. They haven't had a manifestation of God's power. They haven't had some miraculous thing take place. For over 400 years, God has been silent. And then this guy, Jesus, comes on the scene and he says, Look at me and you're seeing God. God and I are one. You're hearing the very voice of God as you listen to me. And he says something crazy, and he says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. If Jesus meant that, what does that mean for us? Well, here's a few things. If Jesus really meant what he said, then here's a few things for you. The first one is this. We can know God because we've seen him. We can know God because we have seen him. How many of you have ever been on a blind date? Anybody? Am I the only one in the room? Okay, there's a couple. Maybe we don't want to admit it when we go on blind dates. I don't know. I've been on a blind date before, and blind dates for me were terrible. Now, I don't know if it's just because this is what they were getting, and it just kind of shut them down or what, but it was terrible. When I was 25 years old, I was a, a youth pastor in Missouri, and um, the associate pastor, the worship pastor's wife, Sarah, was really concerned about my future. She was really concerned about the fact that I was 25, 26, and still single. And so it was her mission to find me a woman. And so, so we lived, now it got really difficult because we lived in a town of 1,800 people in rural Missouri. And so if you like picture the boondocks, and then you picture like redneck boondocks. It, look, if you don't know Donovan, Missouri, Donovan, Missouri is in the middle of the Mark Twain National Forest. They literally allowed their kids off for a full week of school for deer hunting season. That's how, that's a great school, right? My kids would come to church on Wednesday nights at deer hunting season in full camo because they had just cut out of the woods on a Wednesday night. That's how redneck this. And she was worried about me. She was worried. And she said, Jared, I've got this friend who lives in Popper Bluff, like a town of 40,000 people, 25 miles away. And she has a daughter, and she's, she's awesome. She's, she's, she's a little quiet, but she's really cute, and she'll make a great pastor's wife. Right? Because that's what she was. And I said, Sarah, I'm willing to try a date, but I'm not committing to anything beyond a date. And so I drove to Popper Bluff, and we went out to um, some, some steakhouse or something. And, and the whole time, the whole time I was there, it was so painfully awkward. Now, there's like, when you say that she's kind of quiet, 
that was like the understatement of the century, right? She wouldn't, it was, she was so reserved and so quiet. It's like she wouldn't even look me in the eye. Now, maybe it was because she got this talked up to her and she was really disappointed. I don't know what it was, but that date was, a, she wasn't what I expected, right? I was thinking somebody cute, but talkative, a great pastor's wife, you know, like my wife. And well, she'll say that she's the worst, but I think she's amazing. And, and that's what I got instead, or she was what I got instead. Now, when I went back to her house and took her inside and met her mom, now that was the woman that I wanted to be dating. But she was, she, she was single and really attractive and really outgoing and talkative. And I was like, ah, if you were about 25 years younger, we'd be perfect. That's why we didn't have a second date. I shouldn't have said that. But it was bad. It's not what, she wasn't what I expected. How many of you have heard somebody's voice on the phone or, or, or what or on the radio and you build up this picture of what they look like and then you meet them and you're just, you are not what I expected. My, my senior pastor, Steve, um, at my last church, we worked together for 10 years. He tells a story when he was candidating at his first church. And this was way before Facebook and, you know, an internet. And, and he sent them a tape of his, of his speaking and they gave it to everybody on the pulpit committee, and, and they listened to him preaching, and they did a phone call, and they invited him out. And, and, um, and he was up there, and after the sermon was over, he came down, and one of the old pulpit committee guys you know, came up, and he said, Well, Steve, um, you're not quite what I was thinking you'd be. You know, this is you know, he's a country guy. He said, I thought you'd be a whole lot taller and thinner, because you talk about basketball a whole lot. And Steve kind of looked at him weird, and he said, I'm sorry, you got a short, fat guy, but this is... And Steve's not short or fat, but that's just the case it is, right? You know, you get an idea, listen to someone's voice, and they're not what you expect. Then we have Jesus on the scene. And God's people have heard the stories, and they've they've seen the scriptures, and, and, and the whole oral history has been passed down over years. And then there's Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1. He says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying is that if you want a clear idea of who God is, you look at Jesus. So we can know what God or who God is like by looking at his son. The scripture says that he is the very essence, the very image of the invisible God, that all of God was dwelling within him. So if you want to know what God's character is like, you look at the character of Jesus. You, you, you want to know how God cares about people who are oppressed? You want to know about how God cares about those who are far from him or about those who are sick or hurting or isolated or, or diseased? You look at the life of Jesus. You look at the Jesus who, when he was confronted by a leper and said, I know you can heal me, reached out his hand, instead of just speaking a word or, or thinking the thought or, or spitting on him or however Jesus wanted to choose to heal him, he could have healed him anyway, 
The scripture says that he literally reached out and touched him. That's Jesus, the image of God. When you want to know how God feels about children, you look at Jesus and you see the scriptures where kids flocked to be near him. And the disciples would would push him away. Hey, Jesus doesn't have time for this. He's with the grown-ups right now. And, And he'd say, disciples, you don't even know what you're talking about. Bring these children unto me. Bring these children unto me. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. You see, they had seen manifestations of God in the Old Testament. They saw the, the clouds that were envelop, enveloping you know, Mount Sinai as Moses is up there you know, hearing from God. You know, and they'd seen that power and that authority taking place. They'd seen the Ark of the Covenant you know, that, that represented the presence of God that was so holy that if, if anyone even brushed up against it, they would die instantly, regardless if it was on purpose or accident. They'd seen, you know, the pillar of fire and, and the cloud that led, you know, the people of God out of, out of, out of Egypt and, and through the wilderness. And so they had seen manifestations of God's power, but now they're seeing God himself in the person of Jesus. Look at the other scripture I put in your notes, John 1, 1 and 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became what? Flesh, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's God in flesh in the presence of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. You see, we can know God. Why? Because we've seen him in Jesus. We've seen him suffering on a cross, giving his life so that we can have our sins atoned for and a right relationship with him. We've seen him resurrect from the grave in all his glory and all his power so that we can be restored unto heaven. Everything you want to know about God you find in Jesus. You see, if, if Jesus meant what he said, then we can know God because we've seen him. Here's another thought. If Jesus meant what he said, then the guesswork of being right with God is over. The guesswork of being right with, how do I get right with God? If Jesus meant what he said, then that, that guesswork is, it's over. Now look, next Monday, a week from tomorrow, please don't let me forget, um, that's my two-year anniversary. Yeah. Whew. Don't let me forget. Haley and I are going to be celebrating two years. And, and I would say that in two years, I have not become a pro at marriage just quite yet. Or how to, you know, love a wife and not say stupid things all the time. My wife, my wife says that, that I am misbehaved. That's what she says. You're a pastor. That's what, all the t- every time I get in trouble, Haley will look at me and she'll just say, you are so misbehaved. And it's just, it's just me. I'm, I'm misbehaved. I do dumb stuff all the time. And when I do dumb stuff, because I'm not really good and long at marriage, you know, I'm always guessing on how to make it right with my wife. And let's just say I'm not a good guesser. I'm not a good guesser. Just, just two weeks ago, now I told you a story about a month ago about how we met Marjorie um, you know, our realtor at a Starbucks, and we were signing papers. And while I was signing the papers, 
in my, in my hand. I had my cell phone. And, and we're literally making an offer on our future new home. And I'm looking at the portal website to see what other houses are on the market, you know, just in case. And let's just say that didn't go over really well with Haley. You know, she was just like, Jared, you're literally making a commitment to offer people money and you're going to be giving them a check. And you're sitting here looking at all your other options. What is wrong with you? Why do you have a problem with commitment? And I just said, babe, that's why it took me 37 years to get married. I have. And so I told you that story, right? You would have thought I learned my lesson. I didn't. I thought it would be funny while we were signing papers once again to finalize our house, you know, like literally in the title company, signing the papers, I pull out my phone just as a joke and I start looking at the houses as I'm putting my signature down like 30 times. Now, look, at this point, the deal's done, right? Money's been transferred. The house is going to be ours unless something terrible happens, right, Anita? I mean, this is like as good as it gets. And I thought it would be really cute to pull out my phone and start looking at other homes. Let's say that that didn't go over well. We get in the car and we start driving back, you know, from Mesa. Um, I'm telling you, I'm misbehaved, Kim. I am misbehaved. And Haley's sitting there really quiet. And I'm just like, babe, we have a house. And she said, do we? And I was like... Are you sure you're not going to back out? I'm like, I was like, babe, I signed the papers. She was like, but you were looking at other houses once again while we were, what is wrong with you? Why are you so misbehaved? And then she took it another route and she said, while we were getting married and you were committing your life to me, were you looking in the audience to see if there was another girl ready and willing to marry you that day? It was bad, Kim. And I said, babe, no, you know, I would never do that. And, you know, of course I wasn't. I was committed. I was in. I love you. I'll never want another woman. I'm saying all these sweet things. You're the most beautiful woman in the world. You're my favorite. You know, just going down the list. Do you want to go buy some new shoes, you know? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. I mean, like, she was done. She, I thought I was being cute, and she's like, this is over. You're in the doghouse. If we were living in that house, you would be in the guest room. or on, on just, We've never done that, but that's how bad it had gotten. Yeah, we got a few. And I was thinking, I was thinking, how do I make this right? And everything I did was wrong. The whole world. Every religion and every culture across the world has been trying to discover how to make themselves right with the Creator. And they think they've found their way. But Jesus is really clear when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Look at the scripture, Romans 3, 22 and 23. Paul writes this. He says, this righteousness, that word righteous needs, means to be made right with God. You know, this righteousness, this, this process of being made right, this rightness between him, is given through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now listen, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And all are justified, how? Freely, how? By His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The scripture is really clear. How we are made right when we're misbehaved, when we all sin and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we're made right through Jesus. And that's it. That's the only way to the Father. Jesus is really clear. Acts 4.12, Luke writes, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you've been wondering, or if you've ever been confused, or if you've ever thought, how can I be made right with God? It's very simple. It's Jesus, period. It's faith in Him. It's confessing our need and realizing how far we are from God and then accepting His grace and declaring Him as Lord and Savior. So the guesswork of how to be right with God, how to be saved, it's, it's over. If Jesus meant what He said, here's a third thought, then God's not trying to keep people out of heaven but he's making it clear how everyone can get in. You see, God's not trying to keep people out of heaven, but he's making it clear how everyone can get in. You ask a kid to draw a picture of God, and sometimes they they draw this really angry guy holding a lightning bolt up in the sky, kind of like Zeus, ready to strike somebody down. You know, like Clint Eastwood, you know, go ahead, make my day. I'm going to squish you like a bug, you know? And that's the idea that we have of God. But that says more about this world than it does him. I want to read you a story about this guy named Brian. It's a true story. Tampa Bay cops stopped Brian. He was a 20-year-old driver at 2.50 a.m. Thursday morning because he was failing to maintain a single lane. But after pulling over, he fled the car, breaking through a fence and vanishing. The 20-year-old told the local Channel 10 News that he was driving with a suspended license. And and he said that I was too scared to stop because I thought he was going to tackle me or tase me or or do something. Um, His name is Zuninga of of Pinellas Park. I don't know how to say it. Um, In his jailhouse interview, he got caught, by the way. He said that the police officer just got really mad because I ran. and, and, And then at that point, I just couldn't stop. And so as the officer searched for him, Zuninga became the hunted as he was tracked and then viciously attacked by an alligator as he hunkered near a lakeside water treatment plant. Now listen to this. He said, when, I, when he first spotted the beast, he thought, I, I'm going to die and, and I'm going to become this gator's food. And as soon as I looked at it, he just opened his mouth and grabbed me and, and we started twisting and wrestling and I was fighting for my life. And, and man, he had a strong jaw. And he said, eventually the gator let him go and he managed to walk to a hospital where cops eventually caught up with their suspect several hours later as he was being treated at St. Petersburg General Hospital for bite wounds to his face, arm, and leg. Brian has been charged with fleeing the police, driving with a suspended or revoked license, and resisting an officer without violence. He told the 10 o'clock news, or Channel 10 news, he felt blessed to be alive. He said, last night was one of those moments 
that you just don't think and you just react. And he said, God gave me one more chance to stop acting like a child and to make adult decisions. Now listen, all he had was a suspended license. Now, he probably was going to get in a little bit of trouble, you know, maybe possibly get taken to a police station, but I doubt that he would have been in jail for a very, very long time. Maybe. Now, because he ran, he's been attacked by an alligator, (laughs) chewed up his face, his arm, his leg. He's in the hospital, and he's going to jail for fleeing police, driving with a spindle license, revoke license, and resisting an officer without violence. Because he ran. Now, he could have leaned in. He could have asked for forgiveness. He could have quickly got out of the car and said, Officer, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't be driving, but this is why I did. Will you please offer me a little bit of grace? He could have. And maybe the officer would have gave him. Maybe not. But before he had the chance, he made his life worse from running from the person that could have helped him the most. Now, in our lives, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we feel guilt? How often do we run away from God instead of running towards God? John 3:16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What's John saying about Jesus? What's Jesus saying? This is a quote of Jesus. He said, I've come to save, to not condemn. I've come to rescue. Stop running from me. Run towards me. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You hear that word? It says everyone. All people right with him. Jesus, the only way to get right with God. See, God's not trying to keep people out of heaven, but he's making it really clear on how to get into heaven. And that's through Jesus. Let me give you one last thought. If Jesus meant what he said, then God has not sentenced us to eternal death, but he's given us the opportunity for eternal life. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. Is that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You remember that from earlier? He's the life. He's proclaiming life. Why? Why is he proclaiming life? It's because we're already dead. We're already dead separated from God. We're already deserving death. We're already pointed down that path to hell. And Jesus is interrupting that. Jesus is stepping in the way and says, you don't, you don't have to go this direction anymore. You're dead. I want to make you alive. We're not saved unless we realize that we are lost and when we're ready to be found. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, because of his great love for us, God, circle these next words, who is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. Made us alive with Christ. You see, we were dead. 
We were headed that way. God doesn't send people to hell. We're going there already. Jesus is stepping in and saving us and bringing us life. It says, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. On December 6th, 1829, George Wilson, not the guy who lives next to Dennis Amenis, that's a, another George. Um, George Wilson and James Porter robbed a mail carrier, critically injuring him in the process. They were tried and convicted on six accounts, and one of them being endangering a police or endangering a mail carrier and potentially ending his life. He didn't die, but I guess back in those days, laws were a little tougher, and they were sentenced to death. Yeah, for robbing a mail carrier, sentenced to death. So their life is in, in, in jeopardy. They were sentenced to hanging, and on July 2nd of 1830, James Porter was hung. George Wilson had some influential friends, and he asked for a pardon, who asked for a pardon on his behalf, and they were very persistent. And the pardon made it all the way to Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson gave him a presidential pardon. However, George Wilson didn't accept it. He was given a pardon, but didn't accept it. He felt like he had done the crime, and like his friend, deserved to die. So his friend said, what do you do? I mean, if you're giving a presidential pardon, and you're not accepting it, so they went to court for him, against him, trying to save him from himself. And so he went to court, and, and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, who ruled that unless he claims the pardon, the pardon is ineffective. I want to get it right, so I'm going to read it. This was from Chief Justice John Marshall, who wrote, The U.S. Supreme Court determined the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he can accept it or not as he pleases. A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of laws, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And we have no power in court to force it on them. And doesn't that also sound like God? Who has granted us a pardon through Jesus. Who has granted us eternity and heaven and given us every benefit of his grace and mercy and love, but he cannot and will not force it upon us. It is up to us to accept it or reject it. You see, God's not sentenced us to eternal death. He's given us the opportunity for eternal life. We just have to accept it. We just have to embrace it. We just have to allow it into our lives. You see, this morning, as, as a response, um, we're going to take communion together um, as a church family. Mike, and, and if you'll help get things ready. Um, these elements that we're going to take represent the body and the blood of Jesus. The bread represents the bread, represents his body that was broken for our sins. The juice represents the blood that was poured out so that we can be made right with him. It represents Jesus' life and death on the cross. 
that he says that on his last night, the scripture says in John, that he gathered all of his disciples together. And he says, and now I'm going to show you the very full extent of my love. And then he washed their feet and they took communion. He says, this is it. This is the evidence. This is the proof of how much I love you. Do this in remembrance of me every time you take the bread and you drink the juice. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we take communion to remember the grace and the mercy and the love and the the beautiful life of Jesus. So this morning we're going to pass out the elements and I want you to hold on to them and then afterwards I'm going to close this in a word of prayer um, and bless it and we'll take it together. What if you meant it, God? Jesus, what if you meant it? You said that when you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then a few years later, you proved it. You proved your love. You proved to the extent that you were willing to go so that we could find this grace and know this grace by giving your life for us on the cross. And this bread and juice that we hold are are a symbol of your body, your blood that was broken and poured out for our sin. You said this here is, is the full extent of your love. Your mercy, your grace, your life, blood given for us so that we could be made right with you. God, we have been made right with you. You have granted us to pardon. You've given us the opportunity to accept it and to know a beautiful life here on this earth and eternity in heaven. But we have to accept it. We have to know it. We have to believe it. We have to live it. So God, this morning, we hold these elements and we accept it, God. We thank you for what you've done for us on that cross. We thank you for what you've done for us in our lives. We thank you that you have made us right with you, God. We are grateful. We love you. We thank you. We worship you, God. 
It's in your precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.